This podcast contains mature content, violence, and coarse language. It is intended for entertainment purposes only. Don't say we didn't warn you. Hi, and welcome. My name is Madison, and you are listening to Who's Knocking, a true crime podcast. Hello, I am nearly better, nearly not sick, but still a little bit sick. So please excuse. Um, If you're new here, if you're that new, please go back to part one and part two of this series because things will make a lot more sense if you do. Um, I'll see what I can do about getting some sort of linkage to those episodes, maybe in the description box. We'll see. Um, And if you are somewhat new here, please consider subscribing. That would be awesome if you did. Um, And you can also listen to us on Apple and Spotify. You can give us a rating. You can comment here. You can do whatever you want. And that would be awesome. And also, if you are into this true crime space and you like true crime content, please consider signing up for my newsletter at grimweekly.com. It's a weekly newsletter that comes out on Fridays and it just gives a little sprinkling of what's going on true crime wise and it's free. So on with the show. Today we are doing part three of the Atlanta child murders. This is going to go over pretty much the trial of Wayne Williams. Um, A little bit before the trial, what happens in the trial, what sort of evidence we had. um, And that's, 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 pretty much what we're going over. I'll give a little bit recap of what we learned in episode one and two. In episode one or part one, we learned about the killings taking place in Atlanta, a little general vibe of what was going on in Atlanta at the time, who was in power, um, what the political situation was like, um, the young boys who started going missing and were found murdered, also a couple girls. Um, how the FBI got involved, how the task force came to be. Episode two, we went over um, the remainder of the victims, the ones who began to um, be found in water, mainly the South River and the Chattahoochee River. Um, There were a couple that were not found in the river. Um, And we went over the bridge incident where they met Wayne Williams after doing the FBI stakeouts at the bridges that crossed the Chattahoochee River. Um, and we met Wayne Williams, we learned a bit about him and a little bit about his family, and we went up to the point where he was arrested, and so that's where we will begin today. So Wayne Williams was arrested for the murders of 28-year-old Nathaniel Carter and 21-year-old Jimmy Payne on June 21st, 1981. For these crimes, he was held without bail at the Fulton County Jail in complete isolation before the trial. There was a little isolated section of the jail that had been prepared for Wayne, and he didn't see any other inmates during his entire time there. The risk, obviously, was that somebody would try to attack him, um, and they wanted to keep a good eye on him in case he was suicidal. So you'll notice that he was only arrested for two murders, and not even two adult murders, too. Um, We'll get into a little bit about why that was, but that is one of the big kind of disappointing aspects of this case was that this these are the only two he's tried for they did not have a huge lead up to the trial as the trial was scheduled to occur in december um, giving the defense only six months to prepare it's nearly unheard of for a defense team in a trial this large not to ask for more time but there was a lot of what seemed like kind of rookie moves played by the defense team And Wayne didn't have money for lawyers, so everyone was court-appointed. So the main defense attorney for Wayne was a woman named Mary Welcome. She was a very popular local lawyer, and she was very good. But she had never tried a murder case before. So a little little bit of a rookie. Mary chose to add Tony Axum to the team. He had a lot more experience with major crimes, and so he seemed like a really good fit. But it wasn't long before Wayne ended up firing Tony only three months before the trial. Apparently, Tony had been trying to take over uh, as lead for the case when Mary was supposed to be the lead. So the two apparently fought over that and they fought over lead time. Tony wanted the trial to happen as soon as possible and Mary wanted more time. So they really butted heads seemingly over that, um, which I guess then she convinced Wayne to fire Tony Axum. So 
the defense team is not all on the same page as we're seeing. Mary also got a man named William Northup to volunteer his time as an investigator for the defense. He says he was just really genuinely interested in the facts of the case, so he decided to do his work pro bono. Mary to this day describes Wayne as a very difficult client, that he was more focused on his band and talking to them and trying to get them ready for their upcoming performances and such. Um, he wasn't really, he didn't seem to really care, but also was very, like, he kind of tried to take the lead on everything. Like, he was just a really difficult guy. And, like, it kind of checks out with the way that a lot of people described Wayne um, in his life. He was a difficult guy. Um, but she still maintains that she believes in his innocence to this day. So, Tony went on to be replaced by a man named Alvin Binder. And Binder was described as being, quote, mean as a yard dog and had a mind like a steel trap, end quote. He was smart and quick, and he was a very good lawyer. The defense team being court-appointed obviously had fewer resources than the prosecution, especially since this case in particular had the backing of the FBI. So all the testing and lab work that was done was through the FBI labs and all done at their expense, I suppose. Um, so this was quite a big disadvantage for Wayne's team, and I definitely see that. There's, um, in the documentary series, the HBO documentary series, um, they harp on a lot about how they were, the David and the prosecution was Goliath, and, you know, it, I, I don't think they're necessarily wrong. The prosecution in this case um, had a lead prosecutor, um, and his name was Jack Mallard. And Mallard was known for being a very theatrical attorney, and this case really put him on the map. Here is Jack Mallard explaining why they chose to only convict Wayne of two murder charges. There were 28 male victims that were um, on that list that were possibly linked to Williams, but he was only convicted for the two older ones, the adults. Why, why is that? Well, we looked at each of the cases, and in doing so, we noticed that we had more evidence against those two that were charged, Cater and Payne. Mm -hmm. We had to look at it from a legal viewpoint. Would the conviction stand up on appeal? Because we charged in say 10 or 15 or 20 even, and I believe a jury may have convicted on that many. Mm -hmm. Still, if there's not enough evidence from a legal viewpoint, then the appellate courts will overturn it. So you think, that, you think a jury would have convicted on the 28, you yes. said? You think they would have? Really? No, not on 28. Yeah. I said many is 15 or 20. Many is 15 yes. or 20. Right. So, um, but, but they, people want to know why, why were they never, they weren't dropped. No. You said they just weren't brought to trial. That's right. And just because you didn't feel, you, you felt the evidence was stronger on the two of them. Yes. A, a prosecutor has to look at it not only from a viewpoint of, well, let's solve the case. And I believe a jury will convict, so let's indict him and try it. We have to look at it down the road, five years, 10 years, when it's in the appellate courts, will the evidence sustain uh, that conviction from a legal viewpoint mm -hmm. when it's in the appellate courts? And we felt like at that time there was not enough sufficient evidence to charge, convict, and keep the conviction down the line. Some interesting things I think that should be noted from this clip. One, I will get into what happened to the other cases in the next episode. Um, like what happened after the trial and which cases were closed, et cetera. And two, even the FBI and the prosecution never really thought that Wayne was responsible for all 28 murders. I think that even they would admit that the list is full of murders that really should not have been included in the pattern of murders that that we attribute to one person. And I really think that that aspect of the case cannot be stressed enough because I believe that having victims on the list who clearly didn't fit the pattern is a huge reason for confusion in this case. This again, we will revisit in part four, but please keep that in mind because I think it's it's so important when, we, when we're trying to figure out why the hell this case is so confusing. Okay, so back to the trial. So due to the like racial and political aspects of this case, they decided to do a lottery to decide on who the judge would be. Interestingly, the judge chosen at, air quotes, random, turned out to be Judge Clarence Cooper. This was Atlanta's first and only superior court judge who was black. 
Now, Cooper was certainly qualified and known to be a very fair guy, but many speculate that the prosecution only wanted a black judge in the event that Wayne was convicted. And that way, nobody could accuse them of bias or racism. And I haven't seen any real evidence of this, but I can absolutely see why people think this. I mean, who knows, but it does seem like quite the coincidence to me. Um, and I also believe that there were some ties. Um, Judge Clarence Cooper had like worked with, I don't know if it was Jack Mallard or if it was somebody else in the prosecution. Like they were, he was very buddy-buddy with the prosecution. So the prosecution's case had a little of this, a little of that, but what it was really missing was like a smoking gun, okay? They had a mountain of circumstantial evidence. They had a lot of eyewitness testimony, multiple people saying that they saw Wayne Williams with some of the victims on the days that they went missing, and they had some forensics. But none of it was, you know, so so perfect that it would have like that that one piece would have been the case you know what i mean that you get to see in a lot of these murder trials i'll take you through the evidence that they presented but one thing the prosecution did do that the defense did object to but judge cooper did allow was use 10 other cases as pattern evidence this would be known as the pattern murders and they would be used to establish other forensics victimology and motive and the defense team says that the pattern cases were brought up after the trial began and that they were really caught off guard by this. This was pretty controversial and some people argue that it is prejudicial since Wayne was never tried for any of those other murders and you can't say that he necessarily did them. The defense team really harps on this in the HBO documentary. They see it as a huge injustice and they think that it was absolutely unfair. But... Under Georgia law, this is allowed and has occurred before. And that's kind of what the prosecution says. And if you ask me, it does seem pretty prejudicial to use evidence of 10 additional murders that he was never charged with. But I don't know, what do I know? I'm just a doctor. Now, Mary Welcome still laments to this day that she should have been given extra time to go through and prepare as they essentially just dumped 10 additional murders onto her lap, which, I don't know, sounds kind of fair to me. Um... The 10 other cases that were included as pattern murders were Alfred Evans, Eric Middlebrooks, Charles Stevens, Terry Pugh, John Porter, Luby Jeter, Patrick Baltazar, Jojo Bell, Larry Rogers, and William Barrett. All of these victims were black males, although they varied quite a bit in ages, and they were also all of a pretty similar size. With the exception of John Porter, all of the 10 pattern case victims and the two that were he was on trial for died by manual or ligature asphyxiation or were assumed to have. They were all five foot five or less, most of them much less than that, and the heaviest was 130 pounds. I just had a baby, okay, so to keep that in mind, but they were all smaller than me. And, you know, you don't really get a good sense of how big I am, but I am a short, and I'm I'm five foot five. Um, I'm, a, I'm on the small size for women. So they, these were small fellas, except John Porter. And John Porter was five foot 10. That's like, that's a guy size, but that's not like crazy tall. Like the, none of these guys were even, even, uh, headed towards six foot tall. You know what I mean? Like these were small guys. Um, they, all of them were Wayne size or smaller, except John Porter. Um, and John Porter also died of multiple stabbings. He was a, definitely an outlier in the situation. And I think we'll kind of get into that in, in part four, because um, I have some thoughts on that. But all of the victims on the list and the two that Wayne was dating trial for, um, in all of those cases, they had found fibers and dog hairs that the prosecution believed probably came from Wayne's home, car, and family dog. So John Porter, as I said, didn't initially make the list. Last week, I, I said that he didn't initially make the list for obvious reasons. Um, but John did have the fiber and dog hair evidence and some blood evidence that led back to Wayne. And on top of that, apparently he had links to Wayne before his death, like um, the, they knew each other, which I guess is why he was included in the pattern cases. 
Now, it's very interesting because in the HBO documentary, and okay, I think I talked about this last week, but the HBO documentary definitely takes the, um, the side that Wayne is at least not guilty, um, whereas some of the other books I read definitely took the opposite side. Um, but they really try to make it seem like these pattern cases were all over the map, that they were co- like, they look different, their ages were different, their sizes were different, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I, I do think it's, inter- it's, that's kind of wrong. Like they were all small guys um, and their ages. I just think they did get older. And I think that the FBI's analysis that somebody, if it was one person going after all of these people, um, that their ages would get older made sense. Children were watching out for themselves and their parents, like everyone was weary because it was child murder. So it made sense that he adapted and got older. Um, And also I have to assume that for somebody who's trying to like physically harm somebody, um, and and it definitely depends on the type of person they're going for and why, but I think age is probably going to matter a lot less than like size and general demeanor. As we learned last episode, a lot of the guys who were older also seem to be like mentally challenged or had some sort of intellectual disability, making them much less mature mentally. Um, And this seems to be like a physical thing. So to me, their size probably matters a lot more than their age. Again, no expert, just guessing here. Um, Anyway, so the details that we will go into further about the trial generally fall into three categories. The prosecution's case just kind of came down to these three things. One, eyewitness testimony. Two, forensics evidence. And three, Wayne himself, his story, his behavior, and his match to the profile. Now, this sounds like a lot when you put it like that. And one could even argue that it is. And I think a lot of people do. But none of these things on their own are airtight. So let's go through each piece and see where we land. Okay, so first we'll go through the eyewitness testimony. So I've gone on a lot on this show about eyewitness testimony. And I still believe that eyewitness testimony, especially on its own, can be extremely unreliable. Eyewitness testimony is a lot stronger when there are multiple accounts saying the same thing, or it's used to corroborate something else, or that eyewitness testimony is backed up by other evidence. For example, an eyewitness says that they saw a suspect at a certain place and time doing something criminal. Then the suspect's car GPS backs up the time and place that they were in that spot. Um, That means that the eyewitness is being truthful about the time and place. And so then you have a little bit more reason to trust the reliability of the behavior that they claim to witness. Context matters when we're talking about eyewitness testimony. So I just want to be clear that I don't think eyewitness testimony is useless. I think that it needs to be taken with a grain of salt. It needs to be backed up. You can't, you know, we just saw with um, the Eileen Franklin case against her father. You cannot have a trial. You cannot have a somebody be charged with something and the only evidence is eyewitness testimony. It's just not enough. However, here we have multiple witnesses from all different walks of life, most of whom don't seem to have a dog in the fight one way or the other, testifying to different things. The prosecution had over a hundred eyewitnesses. So that's a lot of eyewitnesses. So I'll go over a couple of them and this is like the general vibe of what type of witnesses they had and what they were talking about. So there was a kid named Eugene Lester and he was a friend of Jojo Bell's. He testified that he was with Jojo the night that he disappeared and they were playing basketball together. He said that he saw Jojo get into a white station wagon with Wayne Williams that night. Then there was a guy named Robert Henry. Here's what he had to say. This witness, Robert Henry, did place Wayne Williams with the very last victim, Nathaniel Cater. Henry worked with Cater. He said he saw him leaving this theater with Williams on the night of the bridge incident. Henry has no doubt, even today, about what he saw. We were holding hands, you know, like male and female. <laughs> well, if you're holding hands with one of my co-workers and both of you are males, what am I supposed to do? Turn my head? 
When Wayne Williams took the stand, he swore he never met Nathaniel Cater. On the evening Henry said he saw them, Wayne testified he was home, sick and asleep in bed. His mother and father, now deceased, backed him up. Homer Williams said he had the white station wagon until almost midnight. Oh yes, that was kind of a rude thing to say, Robert. But his testimony did seem credible, and the jury bought it. Apparently, Nathaniel Cater was known to be bisexual and was also known to engage in sex work to make extra cash. And we'll see that this, like, sex work paying for sex situation comes up quite a bit. Now, interestingly, in this clip, they said that during the trial, Wayne testified that he was homesick during that time and that his parents backed up that story. Homer said that that Wayne was sick all night, all day and then he came back with the car at midnight and that's when then Wayne went out. Now, this could be true and work with Wayne's original story that he was home until 12 and then went out to the San Susi Lounge. See, I can never say San Susi and it's a prominent part of my life, which I will not tell you about. But anyway, the San Susi Lounge, looking for the manager and then went out to look for Cheryl Johnson's apartment. It's just interesting that now he says that he was sick the whole day and that on the night he was sick and he just decided to go gallivanting around town in the middle of the night i don't know it's just an interesting addition seeing as when he was caught on the bridge he never mentioned he was sick nobody noted that he was sick i don't know what type of sickness he said he had i mean it's one thing if he said like oh he had a migraine all day and then it went away but here we're just saying that he was sick According to a Washington Post article, Henry was one of the three separate witnesses to put Wayne with Nathaniel that night. So there's three different people corroborating that story. That's a lot. And that's where I think a lot of these hundred witnesses come in. Um, they're not all corroborating like him being with the victims. There's some talking about his personality or... Um, you know, probably the neighbors saying that he pretended to be a police officer, etc. Um, but there's a lot of multiple people corroborating one incident, which is important. There was an 80-year-old man named A.B. Dean who testified to seeing Wayne and Jimmy Payne standing near Wayne's station wagon on the night of April 22nd, just five days before Jimmy was found in the Chattahoochee. And interesting and very important, Wayne, like, constantly throughout this trial, denied ever knowing or seeing any of the victims. He never met any of them, so he says, and continues to say. There was a woman named Ruth Warren who said that she was at the shopping center where Luby Jeter was last seen, and she saw Wayne and Luby talking and Wayne asking Luby to go with him. A big and very damning eyewitness was a man named Bobby Toland. Now, Bobby was an ambulance driver, and I believe that he came across Williams multiple times at different scenes that Wayne was um, photographing, because remember, he was working, um, going to like different accidents or murder scenes or whatever, taking photos and then selling them to the news station that he worked at. He claimed on the stand that Wayne was a racist. He was racist towards lower class black people. He claimed to have heard Williams say on multiple occasions that all poor people should be killed and like really being mean and saying awful things about these young boys and street kids and stuff like that. Bobby was the most notable, but one of multiple witnesses who testified to Wayne saying things like this, calling other black people the N-word and alluding to thinking that the street kids deserved what was happening to them. Another eyewitness was a woman named Sharon Blakely. Now, she worked with Wayne at the news station, and she had a very good relationship with Wayne. They had sort of a mentor-type relationship. Most people thought that she was going to get on the stand and vouch for him because she really did think that he was, like, a, a great kid, like, coming up and working hard or whatever. But she did not. And she seemed very reluctant and upset that she felt she had to do so. Sharon testified to a time that she asked Wayne if he would confess to the crimes if the authorities found enough evidence, to which he allegedly replied with, yes. Sharon said on multiple occasions, Wayne had been complaining about the street kids and saying stuff kind of akin to what Bobby said, although I think less crass. She said that one day she cautioned Wayne that one of them might hurt him if he kept going on like this. 
And according to Sharon, Wayne replied that he wasn't worried because he knew a way to squeeze their necks in a specific place that could knock someone out in seconds. It was actually the defense who would go on to ask Sharon if they thought that Wayne had committed the murders on the stand. They asked her that. And she paused for a good while and she looked very upset and then she said yes. And she said sorry to Wayne after this and it was clearly very painful for Sharon to have to say that. Now this was a big blow to the defense and they were not anticipating that Sharon would answer this way. They thought that Sharon would say no because she was such good friends with Wayne. Sharon also owned a jewelry store with her husband and when she was there one day she claimed that she saw Wayne stalking a young guy across the street at the grocery store and apparently Wayne had been trying to recruit this kid to sing for him and for his band or whatever after the boy had repeatedly told Wayne that he couldn't sing. There were also multiple young men and teen boys who testified that Wayne Williams had offered them money for sexual favors. This is only a few of the eyewitnesses, but probably the most notable. Now, in a not very shocking turn of events, some of the over 100 eyewitnesses' claims were later proven to be false. Most notably, Bobby Toland. It was later, and proved as a strong word, but I'll say alleged. Um, most notable was Bobby Toland. It was later alleged by another guy that worked with Bobby that it was Bobby who said those things that Bobby claimed that Williams had said about the poor black kids, and Bobby was actually a member of the KKK. There were also allegations that the FBI coerced some of the witnesses to say conclusively that it was Wayne Williams who they saw, when in reality they couldn't really say one way or the other. Ruth Warren and Henry Robert were two such witnesses. Both of them later said that they couldn't be sure that it was Wayne who they saw, but that the FBI told them to say conclusively that it was. Now, these accounts of false testimony and possible witness tampering were brought up after the trial in an attempt to appeal, but the appeal was ultimately denied. And I think that there was there was a little bit more um, allegations against the FBI, but these were the, the big notable ones. So what do we make of all this eyewitness testimony? There were over 100 witnesses for the prosecution. Obviously, they wanted as many accounts as possible in order to really bolster their case, and that makes sense. And I guess the crux of the matter is, were any of these eyewitnesses coerced? And if so, how many? And if so, which ones? Even if 100% of them were coerced, Wayne still could be guilty. But the eyewitness testimony was very compelling, and it was a huge aspect of the prosecution's case. So if large portions of it were not true, would the jury still have convicted Wayne? Sorry, it's I, I kind of have to spoil it because he does get convicted, but I think we know this. These questions, I cannot answer. A lot of people have analyzed this and have come up with completely different conclusions. For example, in this book, Child Killer, which obviously we it's obvious from the title which side they take um but jack rosewood he brings up a bunch of the witnesses um ruth warren henry robert henry henry roberts whatever his name is um and just talks about them says what they say and takes them at face value and moves on the hbo series on the other hand mostly talks about the eyewitnesses that later were made to be made to look like they were false or coerced and kind of make it seem like all the eyewitnesses were probably testifying falsely or coerced sorry there was a noise over there um so those are kind of the two ends of what is a spectrum of ways that you can look at this case so it's very very difficult if you're trying to be unbiased and you're trying to um to figure out what the truth is to to parse out where it actually lands i think if you're on the side that wayne williams is innocent or not guilty you really make the fbi out to be these bad guys and you make out you have to really think that there's some sort of grand conspiracy going on you really lean into the idea that they really didn't want um or they really wanted this to be a black person because they really wanted to avoid possible race riots and like bad animosity between whites and blacks. 
if you are on the other side and you really think that he that um, Wayne Williams did this, then you really put a lot of trust in the FBI and you just think that they're going about their business and have no political motives. And th those are kind of like the the severe ends. And as I've said before, I'm really trying to be unbiased. I definitely have biases and like I have an opinion that I'll get to at the end, but I'm trying to really see it from both sides. Trying my best. So the forensics. This is a very hot topic. What forensic evidence did they have to link Wayne to the victims? These days, forensics are the smoking gun in most murder cases. And back in the 1980s, they did not have the technology that we have today. Even now, I think it's important to be skeptical of forensic evidence. A lot of it has been proven to be far more art than science, and I've suggested this book, Junk Science, a few times, and I still stand by that recommendation. It's somewhere. I don't know. Um, they kind of go over a lot of the more niche forensic forensic um, analyses genres. No, forensic categories um, like arson and bite mark evidence, etc. And talk about why it's really more unreli unreliable than people think. Um, often with specific types of forensics, you are not able to match exactly to a person or a, an exact fiber, etc. It's more the ability to rule somebody out or give the probability of matching to a suspect. And where this gets super sketchy is when you have experts come in and go over the science in a very confusing or overly scientific way. And that leads the jury to believe that their analysis is much more concrete than it is, or it bores the, the they, they come in and they talk about something and it's really, it is reliable, but it's so fucking boring that the jury kind of like nods off which can you like imagine being in a trial for eight hours a day and somebody's up there talking about something that you're really not interested in i'd like check out at hour one so it's hard it's hard to to walk that fine line of um it's like it, it's not easy to explain something to somebody that's a complicated thing in a way that they understand um and especially for these guys who, you know, you bring up eyewitness, like it's it's a skill in and, of it, in and of itself to explain things to people, to speak publicly, to be an engaging speaker. And a lot of these people are like scientists in a lab who are interested in fibers and like they're not good at explaining things to the average person. That's, that's a whole different skill set. Anyway, it's a big reason why forensics are not as reliable as we think. Um, the forensics in this case, like many, are quite contentious, and like everything else in this case, you can kind of see it from both sides. I have briefly touched on the evidence in this case, and it mainly comes down to fibers and dog hairs and a little bit of human hair and such. So we'll start with the two victims that Wayne was being tried for. First, we have Jimmy Payne. Now, Jimmy was found to have um, some violet acetate fibers that were present on Wayne's bedspread. And I believe that an acetate is like a, um, a bed cover, not like a duvet, but like a, a blanket, like the kind that you'd find at like an old hotel. He had a couple green fibers that were found to be consistent with a bedroom carpet found in the Williams home. There was some rayon blue-green slash blue-gray fibers that appear to have originated from Wayne's 1970s station wagon. Fibers from a yellow blanket found in the Williams bedroom were consistent with several light yellow rayon fibers and light yellow acrylic fibers found on Jimmy. There was blue uh, acrylic fiber found on a blue throw rug in the Williams's bathroom that was consistent with the blue acrylic fibers recovered from pain. It was also discussed in the trial that several animal hairs found on Payne could have originated from William's German Shepherd. In the case of Nathaniel Cater, the violet acetate fibers were found, the green carpet fibers were found, a green polypropylene fiber was taken from Cater's hair that had the same microscopic and optical characteristics as the fibers from the carpet in the workroom in the Williams's home. Nylon fibers removed from debris in a 1970 station wagon belonging to the Williams was consistent with a melted nylon fiber removed from Cater's hair. Fibers from a yellow blanket found in Williams's bedroom were consistent with yellow rayon fiber removed from Cater's hair. And four animal hairs were recovered from Cater that were consistent with the characteristics of Williams's dog. Additionally, they linked all 12 victims to two bedspreads, 
most of them to the green carpet, half of them to the living room carpet and the white station wagon, and 12, um, sorry, 11 of the 12 to the dog hair. There were also hairs found on a number of the victims that were consistent with Wayne Williams's hair, and there was some blood found in Wayne's car that was consistent with two of the victims. Now notice the use of the word consistent. Consistent does not mean that they are a match. Consistent can be used to say that the evidence found cannot be ruled out or the person cannot be ruled out as a match to the evidence, but it is not conclusive. The green carpet fibers were definitely thought to be the most compelling because of how rare these fibers were and how unique looking they were. The green carpet fibers were found to be from a limited run of a Luxair carpet in the color English olive. The carpet was manufactured by a company called the Wellman Corporation, and it just so happened that this limited run was only produced for one year. This was 1970 to 1971. Now, the carpet was made of a very specific man-made trilobal fiber, which the experts claim was very unique looking under a microscope. And after calculating based on how much of this specific carpet was produced and where it was sent, they concluded that the probability of finding someone with a specific carpeting in their home was about 1 in 7,792, which... I'm sure some people think that's high, some people think that's low, but then the probability of finding an environment with the exact carpet fiber plus the multiple other fibers and dog hairs, when you consider that, then the probability shrinks dramatically. This was my understanding of the fiber evidence. I'm sure maybe people could get a little bit more specific, um, but I, I think that's as specific as we really need to get. So how compelling is this evidence really? On the one hand, none of it is conclusive on its own. The question really is, is all of this together enough to make the statistical likelihood that there is another person in the Atlanta area who happened to have this exact carpet, a German shepherd, and a bunch of other blankets and carpets in their home with fibers that looked exactly like these ones found in the Williams's home and cars, what is that likelihood? As much as I would like to think that I am, I am not a forensic expert. So it's very hard for me to say. It sounds pretty compelling, especially in conjunction with a lot of the other evidence, but you tell me. The hair definitely to me does not, did not at all seem very compelling. Like there was, basically it was like there was an African-American hair. There was a, a an, like somebody who had an Afro and also, you have to take into account where Wayne really fucked up is he said that he had never seen these guys before. He had never, like, if he had said, I knew Nathaniel Cater, I gave him a ride this one time, we did have sex with each other, then all of these would be explained. But because he said that he had never seen them before, why would all this stuff from your home be on this person? Now, since the trial, there has been a lot said about this evidence, mostly the fiber evidence. The HBO documentary series made a big thing about the FBI lab where this evidence was tested. Apparently, it was later found to have a lot of contamination. And after some sort of internal investigation, a number of cases where evidence was tested in the facility had to be reinvestigated because they believe the evidence could not be trusted due to the contamination. During that investigation, this case was not chosen as one that required a reinvestigation. I'm not sure why or that anyone really knows why this was one of a small minority of others that were deemed to be okay, according to the HBO documentary, which definitely had a slant. Um, I have not found any real evidence of this, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. If anyone does have any real evidence of this, please comment below. I would love to hear it. But again, this kind of implies some sort of conspiracy. But listen, it really doesn't end there. So in 2007, the state of Georgia decided to do further DNA testing. I guess um, testing had maybe advanced at that point so they could they could go a little bit further. Um, and they did this in response to one of Wayne's appeals. They tested the dog hairs and the human hairs found on Williams. When it came to the dog hairs, they were able to conclude that it contained the same mitochondrial DNA sequence as Wayne's dog. Now, mitochondrial DNA is not the same as nuclear DNA. 
which would give us an exact match. The exact same mitochondrial DNA sequence would occur in about one in every 100 dogs. So this is still not conclusive, but I'd say it's significantly more conclusive. It's way more conclusive than saying this is a this is a German hair, German shepherd hair, and this is a German shepherd hair. Okay, so this is a German shepherd hair with the same mitochondrial DNA as this one. So now we go from every German shepherd to one in a hundred dogs. And I don't know, it's I have not been able to parse out, are we talking one in a hundred German shepherds or one in a hundred dogs? Because that is different. When it came to the human hairs found on Patrick Baltazar, um, those were tested. And again, this was only mitochondrial DNA. And they did find that the hairs were a mitochondrial match to Wayne. The mitochondrial DNA would eliminate 99.5% of all people and 98% of African-American people. So again, not conclusive, but definitely still puts Wayne in the mix and definitely far more conclusive I hate to say the word conclusive because conclusive means something, but like further towards conclusive than what was presented at trial. I'm sure some people will listen to this and go, come on, how can this not prove that he's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? And some people will say, there's a lot of people in that 0.5% of the population. And I will leave my opinion out till the end, as I said, but my intention at this point is just to lay out all the information that I have gathered. Things that point to his guilt and things that point to his innocence. And let's also keep in mind that this is a court of law. And in a court of law, we're not choosing between guilty and innocent. We're choosing between guilty and not guilty. And those are completely different. Not guilty does not mean that the person is innocent of a crime. It means that the prosecution has not proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, in the last category, and personally what I kind of think is the most compelling is just Wayne. So we know about the bridge incident. Now hear me out here. If we are to believe that Wayne is not responsible for the death of Nathaniel Cater or any of the other victims, then we need to believe that Wayne is the most unlucky son of a bitch in this world. We would need to believe that Wayne just happened to find himself on this specific bridge at the exact time that something large fell into the water, according to this FBI agent, who some people say was lying, but let's just go with it for now. Hear me out. That something large fell into the water, likely from that bridge, and that the body of Nathaniel Cater just happened to be found two days later downstream from said bridge. We need to also believe that Wayne's ridiculous story about Cheryl Johnson, who we know does not exist, um, we need to believe that story. On top of Wayne just coincidentally being on the bridge at that time, he also just happens to match the profile of the killer to a T, which was made long before they found Wayne Williams. His young age, his lack of sexual history and possibly being gay or bisexual, he's black, owned a German Shepherd, had a vehicle that was a kind of police type looking vehicle. He had impersonated police officers before. He liked to lure children with his music and talent opportunities. All of these things were present in the profile. Um, we also have to believe that Wayne and his family were just really into deep cleaning, that his dad Homer just happened to decide to burn a bunch of photos and other unknown items that had nothing to do at all with the crime, at that time, something that he had never done before. And on top of that, to my knowledge, there's no real exculpatory evidence. There's no solid alibis, nobody coming out of the woodwork to take responsibility for the Cheryl Johnson call. And a lot of people who have come out after the trial saying, Wayne Williams tried to abduct me. We'll maybe talk about some of them in the fourth episode. For the people who are positive of Wayne Williams' innocence, of which there are many, I just cannot get past what a crazy amount of coincidences would have have to have taken place in order for him to be put, like, deemed as a suspect. There's a lot of people who believe that the FBI conspired and set Wayne up and, like, planted evidence on him to target him. And... It's just if they were going to do that, don't you think they'd do a better job and they'd make it more uh, more conclusive? I don't know. Wayne also did not help himself by taking the stand. It's often a very ill-advised thing to do. Wayne decided to take the stand in his own defense. And according to Mary Welcome, she was actually very supportive of this, which is shocking to me. And like, why? 
But if she had any knowledge of the press conference that Wayne held before his arrest, like it should be shocking. And it is shocking to me that she would trust him on the stand. But that's what she says today. Now, the prosecution maintains that it was the FBI's suggestion to keep Wayne up there for as long as possible. They knew that it would come off well, that he would come off well in the beginning, but they hoped that if they agitated him enough and just pushed him enough that he would crack and have some sort of outburst. And this did happen. The prosecution kept asking Wayne questions that he couldn't answer, asking him about the bridge incident and asking him questions like, didn't you start dumping bodies in the river because of the publicity about the fiber evidence? Which, okay, if I was innocent, I would get pissed too. That's super annoying. But Wayne exploded. On the third day of his trial, he started yelling about the FBI, calling them goons, and he said something like, I am no more guilty of killing these children than you are. And then he said, quote, you must be a fool. You want the real Wayne Williams? You got him right here, end quote. That morning, he was a complete different person. Immediately, he started attacking. He came out of the chute like a bull. When he said, uh, you want the real Wayne Williams? You've got him. And I think all of us, the jury understood that, yeah. I was probably my own worst enemy. I was an arrogant, bus-headed idiot at the time, and I played right into these people's hands. I could see almost the shock in the jurors' faces if they said, my God, is this the same Wayne that was up here yesterday? I could see that. When you got angry with the prosecutor, you said, you're a drop shot. I called him a drop What's shot. What's a drop shot? What's that mean? Quite simply, in our vernacular, a drop shot is a guy who's not worth much of anything. <laughs> you know, just drop him and shoot him and get him out of the way. In other words, you're useless. We reminded Wayne that he also called poor black children on the streets the same thing, drop shots. That does not make me a murderer simply because I said somebody is a drop shot or because I called him a drop shot. That does not make Wayne Williams a murderer because I said somebody is a street urchin. You know, come on, we're talking about murder. The fact is, I didn't kill anybody. At the end of the day, Wayne's right. He said a lot of things, but that's not proof that he killed anyone. The question is, does this contribute to the collection of circumstantial evidence that leads you to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that Wayne is guilty of these two murders and probably the other 10? It is Wayne and Mary's assertion now that after day one of Wayne's testimony, Mary talked to Wayne and said that he was acting too calm. She reminded him that he was being tried for two murders and that the implication as a whole was that he was a serial child murderer. So she urged him to show more emotion on the stand. And this is what the both of them say was the reason for Wayne's outburst on the stand. Um, and that he, and, and you know, the FBI goes on, like Jack Mallard talks about the outburst often as like, this is like, see, he's a Dr. Jekyll and, or Dr. Jekyll and Hyde, whatever, whatever those two are. Like, you know, he has an alternate personality where he's like super violent. Um, but to me, like, if I was an innocent person being bombarded, 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 saying all these things that I was a child murderer, I'd get mad too. This wasn't video recorded, so it's hard to say without really seeing. A lot of people on the anti-Wayne side seem to put a lot of stock in the outburst, like I just said, Jack Mallard. Um, they say that it revealed his angry side, which proved that he was capable of violence, I guess. Um... I guess if anything, it just proved that he wasn't always as mild-mannered as he was trying to come off. But personally, I just really don't see this as proof of anything. Don't you think that if somebody was innocent and they were agitated and agitated and questioned and questioned, that they would get mad? Like, that's just, to me, it's not, this is nothing. If any part of the outburst especially were aimed at the children, I think that this would maybe be a different story, but I don't really think that it was. Um, and although even in that clip, they do allude to other instances in which Wayne made disparage, disparaging remarks about the child victims, I don't know that that was included in his, the big outburst. About a week after Wayne's testimony, the trial was interrupted as Wayne was complaining of severe stomach pains. He was taken to the hospital and they were, and they found that nothing was wrong with him. Um, and it's interesting because John Douglas has this huge claim he he claims that um after the whole outburst he was like in a week wayne is going to pretend to be sick and then in a week wayne pretended to be sick um i really like to think that everything that john douglas says is true i just i i don't know um i it would be cool because like then you're like a 
future predictor, but I don't know. Um, so anyway, that I think is a reasonable breakdown of what happened in the trial. And there's still a lot to be said about what happened after, but the trial concluded after all the evidence that I laid out and obviously a lot more, I think it was, ooh, how long was the trial? I feel like it was about six weeks or so. Um, the jury convened for only 11 hours before coming back with two guilty verdicts. Wayne was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences, and Wayne is still in prison to this day and still maintains his innocence. So what do you think? Do you, do you think, like, the big question here is, was this enough evidence to determine that Wayne was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in these two murders? And we'll get into, like, the other cases and because there's a lot to be said about the rest of the cases. Because after this, it was like, case closed. 28 murders. I, I do have my thoughts. And I, I'm sure, I, I feel like people could probably guess what I think based off of how I describe this. I can't, there's no way to like not be biased. Um, but that that's where I'm going to leave it today. And please let me know what you think. At this point, do you think he's guilty or innocent? Or... Guilty or not guilty? Guilty or not guilty or innocent? Did the state prove their case? Is is the state conspiring against Wayne Williams, as some people allege? Is Wayne Williams a child murderer, as other people allege? I don't know. But I'm trying to figure that out. So please subscribe if you if you made it all the way to the end. Congratulations and thank you so much. Um, and I will see you next week with part four, which I think will be, that should be the conclusion. I think that'll be the end of it. Um, yeah. Hope you guys have a great week and stay safe out there because you never know who's knocking. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Lost Line Media. Artwork by August Digital. Music by Matthew Cook.